0: Welcome to a very special edition of TechNet Radio. I'm your guest host, Crystal Tooney, alongside Joe Breslin and joined by the one and only Chris Cassidy from NASA Chief Astronaut. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris.
1: Hi, Crystal. Very glad to be here today.
0: So we wanted to thank you, yes, and it looks like you're in space, but we know you're actually in Houston. (laughs) Not often do we get to talk to people who have actually been in space on the show. So, first of all, from someone who's been in space, how did you get there? Like, how did you get from your uh, starting at the Naval Academy, studying mathematics, then engineering at MIT, how did you go on your journey to actually getting to space?
1: Yeah, as any, um, it didn't start out as a planned thing, you know. I was just a guy in high school in Maine and, and trying to figure out where to go to college. And the Naval Academy intrigued me um, for lots of reasons, one of which because it's free and you, you pay back to, with service to your nation, which I was happy to do. Uh, so I found myself there and once I was there is when I learned about SEAL teams. Back when I was in high school, the SEAL SEALs war, weren't all over the media like they are now and every books, lots of books and discovery channels, it didn't all exist. So I had no idea about the SEAL teams in high school and then in college I was exposed to it because you learn at the Naval Academy you learn about different parts, uh, different communities that you can serve in within the Navy and then once I started my career in the SEALs is when I learned about a previous uh, SEAL named Bill Shepherd who had been uh, a SEAL and gone on to be uh, an astronaut and in learning about his background it was kind of similar to mine or or I should say the other way around my background was becoming similar as his so I thought well if he was a competitive applicant and could get selected as an astronaut maybe I could too so it was my, I had nothing to lose but to try
0: it's so fascinating so you had an you had access to an expert you could say and um that helped you kind of craft your own journey yeah you, it wasn't a planned thing is what you're saying
1: not as a kid and even even um I was probably like 26 or 27 years old when it when it was when it the light bulb dawned for me that I I could even apply to become an astronaut. I didn't even know that that, that was something that was possible for me. So as with anything as you as you march down a path, you get learn you learn more information and you can choose to bend that path in different directions and and that's true probably for anybody's personal journey as as you go.
0: Yeah. I don't know about like anyone just being able to be a seal, though. You know, that's kind of that's very <laughs> it's a modest. Yeah, it's a little tricky. And, cool? and so, Go ahead. Jeff.
2: Sorry, Crystal. Sorry. So, um, so what did you want to do as a kid? So you didn't dream to be an astronaut, which I think would be a uh, more standard childhood dream. What was it that you? I'm sorry to say, failed to accomplish. Yeah. Or maybe accomplish that also. Who knows?
1: I love I love sports as a kid, and and I played basketball all the time. I played basketball every day all summer long, and and uh, as much as I could. And so I I had these dreams of being a um, NBA basketball player, but then I I realized it's really hard just to become a college <laughs> basketball player, or a, a slow guy that can't jump from Maine. Your your chances aren't very good. So so I had a little hint of reality and thought, oh, maybe I could be a, a like college or pro basketball referee. So I actually wanted to be a basketball referee when I was in I uh, graduated high school, and I did in college. I, I refereed a little bit and lo- locally around the Annapolis, Maryland area. So that was kind of fun.
0: Did you try out for the Naval Academy's basketball team?
1: I play I went to this place called the Naval Academy Prep School for one year after I graduated high school and I played basketball there and uh, and then I did not play I, I tried out but didn't make it at at the uh, when I got to the Naval Academy.
0: Well you still made the sports center top 10 when you called it from That's the state, true. So I remember
1: that. You've <laughs> yeah. You've got
0: you've got that one going for you. So back to STEM education a little bit following in your footsteps your oldest daughter Grace just graduated from MIT with an engineering degree. Uh, first of all, how proud of you, or how proud of Grace are you, and secondly, um, what do you think about her career path, kind of following in the footsteps of her father?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm all proud of all three of my kids. They're all taking different uh, directions. She's the one that chose the military, and, and uh, when you enter into military service, you take this thing called the oath of office, and you raise your right hand, and, and uh, the administrator of the oath says the the oath and the person who's entering service repeats after that person in it and uh, it's kind of a neat moment and it was especially spe- neat for me because i was administering the oath of office to my own kid just like 10 days ago and uh really 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 special event i think for both of us but um yeah i'm i'm, I'm proud of her that she has chosen um a, a career or hasn't chosen a career yet, but she is entering the Navy, and whether she makes it a career, that, that that's to be determined. But uh, there's so much that I owe to the Navy specifically. If I wouldn't be here talking to you about space, I wouldn't be here talking to you about SEAL team stuff if uh, if it hadn't been for the opportunities that I was given as being a member of the United States Navy. So I just hope that that uh, that she's able to take advantage of some of the same things, not necessarily the same things, but there's just plenty of opportunities that that you can uh, take advantage of.
0: Yeah, has she shared with you any concern she might have being a woman in this field at all?
1: In submarines, she's going. She's going on uh, nuclear submarines, but um, no. I mean, we talk a little bit about stuff, and and um, I'm sure as she. With each phase of training, she'll learn more more things and we'll have more discussions. But at this moment in time, she's just super excited to, uh, to get on with the, the entry training to get into the, to actually get assigned to a, her first submarine.
0: Gotcha. Well, switching gears a little bit, we want to talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, what are your thoughts on how computers and humans interact right now?
1: Just in generally or specifically in space?
0: Um, well you have the experience from being in space, so in space how do they interact?
1: Um, so there's a lot of man-machine interaction going on. I, my my uh, experience base obviously is on the International Space Station. The whole space station is a machine right and it's both broken up into components and subcomponents, uh, and we interact with it in many different ways to a large degree. We interact with just a computer Screen just like you're probably calling on this Skype call with, uh, and we can send commands and have the space station respond and do different things. Um, there is a a particular robot called Robonaut, which is has a human-looking type presence with arms and a head with the with with goggles there, and and we can command Robonaut to do certain events and activities. And right now, it's all on the inside of the space station, but the ultimate goal. Would be to have Robonaut outside the space station, where we can have the robot do particular tasks that wouldn't require us to put on a spacesuit and go outside and and conduct that work. So, in um, that is getting where right now there's still some kinks to be worked out. I don't think it's quite ready for us to fully trust the robot to to do the work that a person can do, but we'll eventually get there. And I think um, robots and people working together is what's going to make us us all of us like the America successful when we go to Mars We need that uh, sort of dual role of robots and people.
2: Yeah. So Chris, on that one, obviously, I think there's something like, uh, you know, 510 robots already scouring the surface of Mars. What do you see as some of the the biggest opportunities uh, to kind of bridge some of the gaps that we currently have in space exploration where we can uh, lend on robotics or lend on technology to, uh, further advanced things, like even thinking about things like virtual reality and how virtual reality and augmented reality can be used for um, for potential training, for having a simulated uh, um, you know controlling a robotic body um, on Mars from somebody who's uh, uh, hundreds of thousands millions of miles away. of course there's the the time gap. but what are some of the big things that you're excited about that uh, technology will enable?
1: Yeah, I mean, while I was we're doing some some experiments in the, experiments in this uh, realm right now. While I was on the board space station, which has already been three years ago, hard for me to believe. Time goes by quickly. But um, we were doing an experiment where the robot was driving around um, on some uh, a, a field in California near yes. a research center, and they built in some. It was near real time, but I think they. Part of the experiment was in was dialing in some delay, and so I was sitting at a console on board the International Space Station, orbiting the Earth, and uh, and seeing camera views from the robot. And my I had certain tasks that I had to drive it to go between some objects or pick up a thing or deploy this. Um, it was really like a plastic shield, but it was pretending to be a solar array, and. Um, uh, and do various things. And it it was it was actually pretty easy, most of it was pretty easy, where you get into trouble as with anything is when it doesn't respond, it, you don't get the reaction out of it that you're expecting, and then you have to use a little bit of head work to figure out or, or back drive what you did and, and get it back on the right track. But it's those types of things that we'll, we'll need to do in order to get to Mars. Now, now specifically about Mars, the robots that are currently there are giving us nice images, really high quality images that we can use then to build training aids as you alluded to perhaps for when the first crew is going there we'll have a 3D virtual environment in, in Houston where they can practice doing some tasks and because uh, training is a big part of going to space. Most, as with any operational thing you want to practice what you're going to do before you actually do it in order to sure give yourself the best chances for success.
0: Will you talk a little bit more about that 3-D environment? Is it all holograms around you?
1: Um, so right now we have this place here at the Johnson Space Center called the Virtual Reality Lab. Lab, And it can, tied into it, we have this mass handling device. Because part of a, part of the challenge with working with things in space is your brain thinks like your Earth brain. And to pick up the chair that I'm sitting in right now, for instance, and move it around, I'm, on Earth I'm gonna l- roll it around on the wheels that it, that, it's, that it has. But in space you just pick it up and you can with two fingers move that same chair where, wherever you want. But even though it doesn't have weight, it still has mass and therefore you can still have inertia on that, on that thing. So so with that, however hard you push into an object, you have to push that hard to stop it. And so tied into this virtual reality uh, lab that we have is a mass handling device where the the sensors and gyros can give you the response of whatever size object a hundred pound thousand pound 2,000 pound object and move that around so you put the goggles on you have this this mass handler in your hand and you get a really really good sense of what it's like to be on a spacewalk walking around the outside of the space station we also practice in there what if you fell off the space station on a spacewalk and we have a little tiny bit of, of Propellant. Well, it's really compressed nitrogen in a backpack that we can blast ourselves back to the space station if we fell off and became untethered. So we we'll practice that, pulling out the controller, added, orienting yourself, and then driving yourself back into the space station. We we'll practice all that in, that in the virtual.
2: So the Matt Damon movie was possible. <laughs> yeah,
1: the, you're talking. Of, you're talking of Matt well, Damon's yeah,
2: things. I forget the yeah. name of it, but where, yeah, he propelled himself through a hole in his sleeve up to uh, the... Orbit that, a- that,
1: that particular scene I found to be a little bit challenging, because it's all about the <laughs> velocity vector of whatever thing, and to hold your arm really still and know that that direction you want to go backwards the other way would be a little tricky, um, but it made for a fantastic movie, and I loved <laughs> yeah, that, that cool. movie. I loved every bit of it. Yeah.
0: So, um... One thing we were talking about before we jumped on the call was uh, self-driving cars. We're talking about Robonaut, how far out that is. What do you think? Robonaut's like five years away or sooner than that?
1: Uh, Robonaut is on the space station, he's just currently inside and and, uh, if you're asking me how long until I think Robonaut could be outside just working in place of a person, um, really depends on funding levels, but maybe 10 years or so, yeah.
0: So what's going to happen first, Robonaut outside the space station or self-driving cars?
1: Hands down, self-driving cars. Yeah, I mean that—that's kind of right around the, the corner, mm. if you—if you—if you will, right? I mean,
0: yeah,
1: there's companies that are, are uh, actively pursuing that, as as you know, and 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 that's a pretty challenging problem too. When if you just had to drive places, that's one set of challenges. But then you throw in people in um, on other automobiles and the motorcyclist that, that cuts you off, or you, that you don't—I mean, I, to me, it's—it's it's amazing that that uh, we're conquering that problem. But we are, which which also shows that the challenges that we have to get us to get to Mars or 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 beyond, we are overcomable. We we have the ability, from a technology point of view, to to conquer all those things, and we will. I don't know. If, it's not going to be probably in my time as an astronaut. But uh, these are all challenges that we'll that we'll overcome.
0: Speaking of challenges that um, we'll overcome with NASA, what are the current challenges? Like, why do we still go to space? Why do we still explore right now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm asked that often, and and, and quite honestly, there's a lot of great. Co- we as a nation have a, a budget that we have elected leaders to determine how to spend that budget. I mean, that's a simple nature of our, of our government. And so there's lots of people that have uh, problems, legitimate problems. Some people have passions that they want to fix, whether it's in their community or global environment or world hunger, you name it. Those are all fantastic things to spend money on. So why, th- this is a, a philosophical, philosophical, philosophical question, um, why is space worthy of of taking a dollar away from a person that's not eating here on earth or to prevent um, icebergs fr- from from melting and and i got I can't answer that directly. I just think that we as people really are meant to explore. We're curious people, all humans are. I mean, you tell a three year old kid, don't open that. Nope. <laughs> You do, don't open that door. What's the kid going to do? They're going to open that door because we we, we want to know what's behind there, and that's how we all are. And we want to know what's on Mars. We want to know what's in our solar system. We want to know what we don't know and push the boundaries of our knowledge and push the boundaries of our technical front, the frontier of our technology. Um, those are all things that are important, and particularly in America, we I think we pride ourselves on being um, kind of leading the, in the in the space. Um, in the space world international, on an international level and, and as soon as we no longer go there we give up um, to the world saying hey we are the technical experts in going to space and and that's a source of national pride and that, that's a hard thing to quantify what does national pride mean but I think most Americans would be sad or disappointed rather better word if uh, if we just sort of threw in the towel and no longer uh, explored off the planet Earth. Yeah. It's to that end, it's like, should we have never
2: left the ocean when we used to be fish? Should we have never gone from Europe to North America? You know, obviously found some other people that are already there. But I mean, it's sort of that same argument. Why would we
1: not explore what's possible? Right. Um, it, it, can you imagine the, the king or whoever, that Christopher Columbus went up and said, look, King, I got this crazy idea but I just need some bucks from you and I can make it happen and trust me I got a good plan." If they told him, no sand dude, we don't want your, your, your plan, <laughs> we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So, and, and I kind of make, say that tongue-in-cheek, but we need to go.
2: Yeah. So on, on a related note, and this, uh, the answer to this might be uh, more challenging than actually getting to Mars. Um, obviously, you mentioned the, uh, the political side of it is one thing and there's always a number of competing interests, but for somebody that is very interested, the person, all the other Joes out there that are interested in space exploration, are interested in, in making sure that we do get to Mars, what are the actions that people can take to help, uh, I don't know, encourage Congress, encourage uh, their other politicians, or are there other ways that people can go to To actually help push this forward to say hey these things are important to us and and it is important that we as a people together are out there are exploring the
1: universe yeah that's a good good question ultimately our funding at nasa we're government organizations our our funding comes through uh, the political process and therefore the will of the people the voters out there uh, means a lot. You know, if, if a, a person has uh, has a passion, they can let that be known to their, their representatives in, in Washington DC. That helps as well. Uh, I also think this new area of, of commercial companies getting involved in space, mm. in space exploration is critical to it as well. Because with that, when people see um, SpaceX launch a rocket, and then the rocket body falls down and lands itself in a controlled way on a floating barge off the coast of Florida or off the east coast of the United States that that's exciting for people and and uh, with that excitement comes just interest in the space program in general, and with that interest comes the political will to to fund and 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 get us going also I think that um a little bit of competi- international competition is mm-hmm. healthy. Yeah, you know we'll go. We'll, we're I, I really do believe that long-term exploration um, is an international endeavor. It's expensive for one country to do it, and collectively you can accomplish more, both financially and as, with political will, if you do it uh, as multiple nations working to, working together. But uh, uh, people will will like but if another country sends an astronaut one of their country's astronauts to stand on on the surface of the moon or uh, our citizens are going to say hey uh, where's our guy how come our astronauts not right there with them so all of those things I think are important for uh, getting the excitement going for space exploration
0: that's an interesting point you make about uh, commercial companies getting involved in in exploration in space, like, did you watch the Felix Baumgartner jump um, from space, the Red Bull event?
1: I did. It was it was pretty neat.
0: What did What did you think about that? Did you like the technology behind, for instance, the suit that he was in and the capsule and all of that?
1: It's funny you bring that up because that's what I was most interested in. Knowing the physics of, mm-hmm. of that, those altitudes and what can happen to your body and the thin thin atmosphere that he's jumping from and then coming into thicker air and heat buildup and all those things is where I was really kind of fascinated with and how did they design the capsule so that he could do the things in that big bulky suit and flip switches and do all the things he had to do but yet still get up and and launch himself out the door. uh, (laughs) It was pretty cool. I think the record's been broken now. I think it has, yeah. Yeah, so Felix is this guy. So
0: when he went into that harrowing spin, did you watch it live? I did, Well, that's another topic, too. I think it would be really cool to be watching more things in space live in real time. Like, that was the most watched YouTube uh, live streaming event ever because it was interesting. People are curious. Like you said, you tell the three-year-old, don't open that jar. They're (laughs) going to open the jar. So um, you watched it live. When he got into that harrowing spin, what were your thoughts there? Were you thinking he was going to be able to come out of it or...?
1: I thought he would, um, the, the, you never know, I mean I like to say things never get better really really fast but they sure can get worse really really fast and he was right on that edge of things can get worse really really fast but he I think kind of knew what to do with his body and he's got a lot of jumps a lot of experience that's why you wouldn't want somebody with no um, with little jumping experience to do that they wouldn't know how to manipulate their arms and legs to flatten the spin out. Uh, but yeah uh, he did a really good job keeping it together and and, and staying stable.
0: Is that something you think you would have been able to do?
1: Uh, With the proper training I think I could have. I mean if you just take me out of this chair in my nice comfortable golf shirt (laughs) uh, probably not so much but um, with some training sure.
0: It's amazing I like think about that and I'm like there's no way like you couldn't put me in training long enough To get me to jump out of that capsule
1: well when when you're in situations like that you have the rest of your life to figure it out so your brain kind of works a little faster than it does when you're just sitting right here
2: yeah and to the uh sort of to this conversation the conversation with how companies like spacex are helping to push things forward i think it's a matter of like you mentioned any like with a human will i feel like anything is possible and with the right training any person can do anything and it's just Making sure that those opportunities are available to people and that the uh, information's available for them to access those opportunities.
1: right. and that's what events like this and social media and all that are are, are great for educating people, getting getting the word out, getting uh, interest going and in different things. so yeah, I agree with you Joe.
0: so um to that point, like how do how do we reach out to more smart people to get them involved in some of these big challenges that are facing not only the U.S. but the if we want to keep space exploration alive and technology and what we can do to innovate? Not many people have been in space, right? Like you are one of the few people who have been in space, and you could probably light up a whole bunch of ideas in terms of technology that could be used in space. How do you kind of help provoke those ideas and attract the brilliant minds of this world to build on them?
1: Well, that's why um there we have not only do we have astronauts and flight controllers here at NASA, but we have a a public relations department just like any other big corporation would and that's their our job that's how what what the how um that's the job of those guys—is to get that word out and and work with folks like you guys to uh, to have podcasts like this and 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 uh, just spark the interest. We we have you mentioned it'd be cool to watch more space stuff live. Well, you can you can dot watch NASA TV uh, any day of the week and, and see live live downlinks of what the crew is doing. And a lot of times it's not a super dynamic thing happening because it's just a camera inside the module. Um, but it's still neat to see the person float by. Of course, on bigger days like launch or entry coming back or spacewalks or grabbing a robotic, uh, grabbing a vehicle, cargo vehicle or something like this, that's a, that's more exciting and probably more folks tune in. But um, there's, uh, yeah, there's lots. Th- those are all things we can do to get folks interested.
2: Plus they're all in space. <laughs> and so and i guess sort of a related question uh for myself personally i was when i was younger i was very interested really enjoyed mathematics not so much the other subjects i wasn't very big into the whole uh memorize regurgitate forget kind of a standard education and then sort of in high school i had um, not too great teachers for the first couple years uh, for math specifically and sort of lost like a lot of the passion and felt like you know maybe it was just a fluke that I was good at it from a younger age so what would you say to sort of to younger Joe to someone where he they're they're in school and they're interested and passionate about things but they feel like they're not great at school or they feel like you know because they don't necessarily operate in this way that there's never a chance or never an opportunity for them to pursue their dreams what what can they do how should they you know think about the world
1: yeah you know that's an interesting thought because i i myself i I enjoyed physics when i was a kid but it was more because i liked math and physics had equations and stuff that i i could plug numbers into and, and do the math for but it it wasn't until later in life that i was doing a lot of diving in the seal teams and the concept of buoyancy was one that first stuck to me. I'm like, oh, okay, there's force that's pushing up on this object to want to make it float. So, but we add weight to it and you can, you know, and I really thought through what the forces were, were doing. And I remember also thinking about hitting a baseball and, and uh, really what was happening to the baseball. It was zooming in to, towards the batter really fast and then this other object that has mass come swing around and, and smacks the baseball. And you see a slow, it was when I saw a slow motion video of the baseball actually smush. And you think about mm-hmm. how a baseball is when you have it in your hand, but yet you see it in a slow motion video and it like a third of it smushes down like a balloon before it goes rocket shipping off to uh, over the center field fence. And then when I was in space, this concept of momentum and and and, Angular momentum like a, like a figure skater, um, were all things that I knew abstractly, but you can in space, you can see those in mm-hmm. personal experiments about spinning around and moving your arms out, moving your arms in, and, uh, and see what the effects of those different things are. And one of my crewmates, Dave Wolf, on my shuttle mission, who was really brilliant with engineering, he described momentum as just the area under the force versus the time curve. And I was like, hey, what are you talking about? And, and then we took a demonstration. We took a big, heavy object, and we pushed really hard, but really short, and it imparted, so you can picture a spike that goes that's really skinny and really tall. And there's a bunch of air. If you colored it with a pencil, you, you use so much lead to color it in. And then took a really low force and pushed for a longer period of time, And the thing had the same momentum, but that time the area is just a little like square thing, but it takes the same amount of pencil lead to color in the area under the curve. So it was things like that that made me excited, like, oh, I can understand these concepts with real actual things that I interact with that I see with my own eyes. Mm. And that's what I would encourage the young Joe to think about. (laughs) They actually think about what an application of this thing, this concept in your real life, in your day-to-day world, what is that concept? And that really solidifies concepts as you learn and when you're excited about stuff you're more motivated to do well on the test and, and instead of just memorizing the problem and trying to figure out which formula goes into problem number seven, you just get it and you can figure it out on your own.
0: All right. Well, Chris, I know that you were um, coming close to our time with you. So one last question to wrap it up for average Joe and for little Joe, mm-hmm. Joe Freslin. Um, <laughs> when is space travel going to be available to the common man?
1: Well, it is available to the common man right now. I mean, I wouldn't imagine I'm, I would be sitting here, but I think your question is when you don't have to be a NASA astronaut, when you can pay a ticket and and go to uh, SpaceTravel.org and, and buy the your seat and pay for one bag and a snack and go <laughs> yeah. to space and uh, be able
0: to experience all the gravity the loss of gravity and all of that.
1: Yep. Uh, so Virgin Galactic is a company that is selling seats right now. Their flights are called suborbital flights. You launch from New Mexico, you get I don't know 20 minutes or something of zero gravity, and then their ship lands right back. Um, at the same, in the same location where you took off. Uh, Orbital, and and that's on the order of $250,000 for a ticket. So that's not quite available for
0: the common man yet.
1: That's not quite the common man, and orbital space flight is even more expensive because it's much harder, much more expensive for a launch that's going to get you in Earth orbit and then come home when you want to come home. That's clearly not for the the common uh, folks right now we don't have millions of millions of dollars of free cash to throw around uh, but more specifically to your question when is it going to happen it will happen i'm confident it space travel will be for for anybody that wants to go with a reasonable reasonable sum of money um, the real when is uh, is if you had a, a crystal ball <laughs> you uh, you would you make a lot of money but it's, it's out there, you know, it's maybe 20 years from now, 30 at a minimum, 20, 30 years, but eventually it will be. As technology gets smarter, the launches will get cheaper, reusability of rockets um, will bring that cost down, so there's a lot of factors that are driving it down, but we'll get there. I don't know when the exact time is, but we'll be there.
0: Well, I'm going to hold you to 20 years, so hopefully in my lifetime I'll be able to be out in space we're, and we're in experience co- yeah. Yeah, some of these phenomenons that, uh, that you've experienced. So thank oh. you so much for joining us. Joe, did you have anything else you wanted oh, to? Oh Just
2: that we'll talk again on June 22nd, 2036, hopefully from space.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Mark your calendar, Joe. Thank you so much, Chris. All right. Uh, we'll see you next right. time on right. TechNet Radio. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Crystal.